Hello and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. Over the past year and a half, federal dollars have flooded into higher education through a series of COVID relief and economic stimulus packages. Unfortunately, colleges and universities have been slow to distribute a lot of that money. On today's program, we'll explore why that is and also share advice for university leaders on how to move forward from here with speed and intent. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. My name is Danielle Yardi, and I'm excited to join the podcast today to talk about a bit of an odd problem that many colleges seem to be facing. And I say odd because when you say it out loud, it sounds quite like the opposite of a problem. Um, In fact, it looks like a massive opportunity. I'm talking, of course, about the problem of figuring out how best to distribute and invest the huge amounts of relief funding that's found its way into higher education across the last 18 months. And I'm joined today by my colleague and EAB's resident policy expert, Jackson Nell, who's going to help me dig into what's happening with higher ed relief funding. Together, I'm hopeful that we can share with you a set of recommendations that will help your institution make the most of this fortuitous opportunity to build back better in the post-vaccine world. Welcome to the podcast, Jackson. Thanks, Danielle. It's great to be back on the pod. Yeah. So the first thing that we need to get to, I want to be clear as we start talking about higher education emergency relief funding, or HERF, as it's been helpfully abridged. Um, I think the first thing we need to know is that we're actually talking about a whole host of different things all commingled together, right? So perhaps, Jackson, you can kick us off on our path to wisdom here by helping get ahead around a little bit of the definition of terms. Right. And I think everyone's largely familiar with the Higher Education Emergency Relief Fund, or HERF, at this point. But again, it's important to acknowledge that there's a little bit of a different flavor to each of the HERF iterations that have existed. There are three now. So going back to the original CARES Act back in March of 2020, which seems like a decade ago, but that's when HERF was created. Uh, And it was about $14 billion at the time, really targeted at helping institutions respond to that experience in the fall of the shift to emergency remote instruction that we were all trying to navigate needed those dollars to to help us then. Um, Then in December, we got HERF 2 in Carissa or SIRSA uh, of 2020. And so those dollars, about $23 billion, uh, came out. And and they were much more fungible and flexible for institutions, really recognizing that there was a host of disruptions to campus in the fall. um, And then institutions needed fiscal support really across the spectrum. Um, So they allowed uh, lost revenue reimbursement, for example, as being an eligible category of the dollars. Um, And they also had a lower student aid threshold. So that was kind of the primary vehicle for uh, a while. And then in March, not too long after that, you got the American Rescue Plan, which passed the largest of the the HERFs. Uh, It's actually uh, the combined sum of HERF 1 and 2. Uh, And in fact, we creatively called it HERF 3, right? Um, And those dollars are uh, now available, about $39 billion. Um, And so that had a little bit of a different kind of uh, flavor to it. It kept some of the HERF 2 stipulations, but added uh, a return to that 50% of the dollars going to students as emergency financial aid, and then imposed two new stipulations around using the dollars for public health and safety measures and conducting direct outreach to students about additional opportunities for federal financial aid using the professional judgment mechanism. So that's the HERF you know, narrative in a nutshell. Obviously, a lot of nuances and details there, but I think that's what most folks need to know. Uh, it will hopefully set the landscape here. Right. And so we're actually talking about a huge amount of money, right? Hinted yeah. at as we got into our conversation today, you know, depending on depending on the state, depending on the type of institution, obviously there are variations there, but most, most institutions are looking at a, a good chunk of change that they're looking now to allocate in, in a short time period, really. 
Yeah. I mean, this is the largest direct federal investment in history in higher ed. Uh, there's no dollar sum equivalent in that standpoint. And there's a lot of other pass-through dollars available that are also going to higher education institutions, either through state funding sources or going even back to the original CARES Act and some of the loan provisions and other grant programs that were created there too. But HERF is, is the primary vehicle that is getting the dollars out. Right. And so... So you would think, you know, given given the conversations that you and I have, have been part of in the last, you know, years in higher education, where folks have been on tenterhooks waiting for opportunities to wait uh, to invest, right? Thinking about ways that they might want to reimagine their student experience, or thinking about ways to sort of improve the sustainability of their organizations. But they've been uh, they've been they've been looking for funds to to put into that, and now we're seeing that we're so far into uh, the opportunity to spend these funds, and there are institutions that are still. Um, you know, 70% of these funds are unspent, at least based on my on my recent looking. You know, is that something that's universal across the U.S.? Is is there variation in different states? You know, where are you seeing folks spending spending these uh, these monies? Yeah, in total, if we're talking about all the HERF dollars here, you know, nationally about 32 in the low to mid 30s have been spent or, you know, uh, at least reported to the Department of Education as of June 30th. Now, it's important to acknowledge that there's a a bit of delay between the drawdown and obligation of the funds and then the reporting. So folks may have made decisions for a greater share of those dollars, but reported at least a significant amount, around 70% still outstanding in in terms of of spending. Um, And a lot of variations across states. You know, you have everything from Delaware at the high end here at 56%. I'm sure President Biden's very happy about his home state taking the lead there. Uh, down to Utah, which is around 25%. And then a, a lot of distinctions, I think, between publics and privates. Publics have been significantly slower in spending the dollars, uh, just given that there's a lot more uh, kind of internal bureaucratic processes to be managed there, particularly when it comes to systems and some of the other kind of procurement processes that we know publics have to deal with. Um, and there's also been a large, I think, small to small to large school distinction as well. So smaller schools have tended to be a little bit faster uh, in deploying their institutional share than some of the, the other uh, larger, more complicated institutions, speaking about their various budget models and, and organizational designs. So right, that's no, the sure best yeah, there are definitely going to be unique, uh, unique circumstances that will make things more or less difficult to distribute. And I think that it's that distinction that you're making there between publics and privates and even just the decision making processes that exist within those different institutions will give you a totally different trajectory in terms of how you're going to be able to spend these funds. So I think that's something we can definitely dig into as, as we keep uh, as we keep going. But I'm curious, just at a high level and, and myself coming from a tech background, I definitely have. Uh, I have theories on why this might be the case that we can also get into. But w- what do you think, Jackson, are some of the biggest reasons that so many schools have been so slow to spend or, or to allocate these funds? Yeah. I, you know, I think we should first give schools a lot of credit. You know, with the original HERF, uh, HERF 1, they spent those dollars very quickly. A lot of schools spent them in mm-hmm. spring of last year, essentially, because it was largely a liquidity shock that they were trying to solve. And so they needed the capital infusion. Um, since then, I think it's taken a little bit slower for a variety of reasons. But, you know, at HERF 2 at this point is, I think, most a majority of it at least has been allocated or at least determined internally on where to go. But a lot of factors, I think, have converged around HERF 3 in particular. Uh, I think first is is that uh, there's the student aid distribution that has yet to occur yet. A lot of schools are waiting for the fall for students to to come back for them to do those allocations at scale. And they're going to do multiple distribution windows, many schools across the the academic year. So that's going to keep those dollars out uh, standing for some period of time. And again, that's 50% of her three, which is is huge, right? Um, 
the second component is the Department of Education was rather slow on getting out her three, the allocations and the guidance. The American Rescue Plan was passed in, in March. They didn't publish the, the allocations and guidance until mid-May. So that prevented a lot of uh, institutions from making those decisions within last uh, fiscal year um, and kind of extended the model a little bit longer uh, in terms of the decision uh, window. It also included some added complexity, as I mentioned, around HERF 3. There are these new mandates that schools have to sort through. So there's an administrative burden and a compliance burden that is added to the time as schools think through how do they meet that reasonable and necessary spend allocation on those required activities. Um, and then more broadly, I think we're seeing a lot of decision fatigue across higher ed, you know, particularly a lot of schools basically hit the reset in June. There was a lot of leadership transitions. People took PTO, much deserved PTO. Um, and so that I think prevented a lot of decisions maybe from being made and uh, deferred them uh, to, to the fall. And then finally, there's the uncertainty surrounding the Delta variant that has really spiked uh, to the forefront of a lot of institutional leaders' minds right now. There's a little more concern about what this means from an operational and fiscal standpoint for the fall. Um, and so some folks are thinking about using HERF as a hedge or strategic reserve just to, to counter some of that uncertainty out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think uh, uh, those are all, I think, feeding into what is a very, very difficult series of decisions that folks have laid out for them in, in, in the months ahead. Um, and I think one of the things that um, you just touched on there that really resonates with me, Jackson, is the fact that um, the, the Department of Education was uh, very slow to get out recommendations around this. And I think that in itself created a lot of confusion around how some of these funds could be spent. I know that I personally get questions uh, on an almost daily basis as to whether or not X or Y uh, particular purchase would fit within the remit of, of what someone could do with their uh, with their HERF, uh, with their HERF dollars. And I, I think what's emerging slowly is that it really depends. You know, there, there are there are ways to make the case for a lot of different purchases, and that's what we're seeing emerge as institutions do go through and start to allocate these funds to different kinds of purchases. Um, but, uh, you, you know, the, the, the guidance that we have seen and that's shifted over time, what is the, the sort of the, the broad brush strokes there that, that we're working within? And then maybe we can dig into some of the nuances and some of those categories that we see as, as opportunities for institutions. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I'm sure a lot of folks on the line can attest to just the tremendous amount of uncertainty. And part of that was you had, you know, a change in political leadership of the Department of Education in the process. So you had new priorities. You also had the department really trying to figure out what was happening here for the first time. I mean, this is all novel terrain for them and for all of us. And so uh, should give some credit to the department, but they probably could have been faster. Uh, there's, a, I think, a lot of, I think, factors at play. But, but generally speaking, um, you know, to be eligible, the expense needs to have a clear nexus or investment thesis tied to some COVID imperative or need. Uh, that can be an indirect one. So, you know, broad enrollment declines uh, or something that's eligible here down to a very direct, uh, narrowly tied, such as campus surveillance testing, right? So that's that's generally at a high level uh, where the, the investment has to occur in and the expense to be eligible. And also, there are a series of prohibited categories, uh, and these have been consistent across all of the, the HERF uh, pools, uh, so to speak. So uh, that's one space I think folks are very familiar with right now. But the biggest one there is, is a prohibition on any of the dollars going to recruitment or marketing, marketing activities. And so that's been the biggest constraint. But generally, I think that's where we see the, the kind of big use categories falling. And again, it's designed to provide maximum fungibility and flexibility for campuses to recognize that no two schools have a similar experience with COVID so far. All of the disruptions and expenses are so hyper-localized that there was no way to get a one-size-fits-all program at the federal level. 
And so I think if if what we do there is look at that um, look at that policy, look at those recommendations, and take a step back. If we put ourselves in those decision maker shoes, I think the first two questions that I'm hearing there that you need to be asking yourself if you're if you're thinking you know is this eligible uh, for 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 these funds is first and foremost is it on that prohibited list right <laughs> If it's listed there, then yes. it's absolutely a no. You know you're going to be able to to chuck that out immediately. Uh, but then secondarily, the the next question should be how would we be able to tie this to that nexus uh, of, of student imperatives, right? How would we be able to tie that to the student experience, to their ability to go on and complete or to go on and graduate or to go on and sort of achieve the goals that they have for engaging with our institution? And I think that's where for me it becomes a little bit difficult because I think in my experience working with higher education, we, we find it very, very difficult to even define what student success is or should look like. And then in turn, we find it very difficult to determine what return on investment or return on experience looks like in those spaces. So as you come to then uh, allocate funding, as you come to think about different projects that might have an impact, defining what impact looks like is very difficult when you can't determine what it is, you know, the outcome that you're looking to drive. And so um, I think that's maybe something that we can start to dig into a little bit more here, Jackson, is, is how how are institutions starting to justify that as we get into some of those more stretch use cases, right? As we start to see things like institutions funneling money into ERP upgrades, right? They're yeah. looking at changing their uh, changing their, their backend systems and, and, and being able to justify a student experience or a student success angle on that. Uh, maybe maybe it's helpful here to start thinking about how institutions are using it and pick a, pick apart some of those cases a little bit. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great question, and I would say you know the, it doesn't necessarily have to be student focused by any means. The the guidance is broad enough to allow a host of institutional use cases. You know everything from keeping folks on payroll to uh, facilitating some of the public health measures internally or uh, making those technology upgrades that have a very clear narrative. I do see some cases that have started to get a little bit tied uh, away from the, that kind of direct COVID imperative. Um, you know, a lot of folks taking kind of some of the off-the-shelf tech upgrades that they were planning to do even before COVID and now adding kind of a COVID amplified need around it. Sometimes that that can be justifiable, but it is certainly, I think, really pushing back and having a, a robust due diligence internally to make sure that that's a justified standpoint from a compliance uh, need, but also to the point around you, the one that you raised, Danielle, of impact. Is this still going to drive the maximum amount of, of value that we want to create for our institution, particularly recognizing that the institution of, of uh, the kind of post-vaccine era looks very different than the institution of 2019? And so uh, I think some of that kind of strategic thinking and those new inputs need to be updated to reflect that for sure. And I think the the other challenge that comes up when it comes to, to justifying the uses is just a tremendous amount of competing priorities, right? Everyone, you know, has some sort of need right now, whether that's uh, paying overtime expenses on campus to, uh, you know, building out kind of uh, de-densified uh, facilities that have robust HVAC systems that allow for all of those measures. So if you're a CFO or a decision maker at an institution today, you're trying to balance all of these very good and worthy ideas, um, but you're also trying to push the institution forward from kind of short-term immediate thinking to things that have longer-term value, right? You can buy a bunch of masks using COVID, but the shelf life of that is very little, right? Despite being essential. So the challenge that schools are trying to say is, is how do you balance those kind of trade-offs and then satisfy as many stakeholders as possible? And that's tricky uh, in any decision for an institution, let alone one where the federal government is essentially paying the bill. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great point. The sort of the the, the ability to look at these funds, yes, as a one-time uh influx into the education sector and, and potentially something that we might see 
see more of, but possibly not at this volume. And thinking about ways that we can meet immediate needs at the same time as laying out that roadmap for how our institution will continue to serve students, will continue to be sustainable, will continue to sort of deliver on the mission that we have. Uh, and, you know, as you were talking, um, Jackson, you talked about HVAC upgrades, you know, some of these things that are potentially um, some of the um, some of the less uh, long-term uh, beneficial investments that we might, might have been making in the immediate term, but as you said, absolutely essential. I'm curious just some of the investments that you might have seen. I know that you've been having a, an enormous number of conversations with partners here. What are some of the more exciting investments that you've heard about, you know, that, where you've really sort of lit up and thought, you know, that's a, that's a fabulous investment to be making at a time like this? Yeah. You know, I think that the first category that really stands out to me are these student uh, equity and access initiatives, um, whether that is clearing all of the institutional uh, student accounts receivable, so, so student debt, uh, institutional student debt, that is. Uh, that's, that's a huge, bold claim. It's also in the financial interest of the institution, right? You're getting all of those dollars as recovered lost revenue that you can then use more fungibly across the enterprise. Um, but th that's been one that I think we've seen a lot of schools publicly announce. We know of hundreds uh, of institutions at this point exploring that in some form, whether they make that public or private or go forward on that remains to be seen. But a lot of interest there and one the Department of Education is very much pushing. I think we're also seeing institutions really double down on their student support services, recognizing that they need to meet students where they are today, and that if they're going to meet their enrollment goals, both for the fall, but beyond, they need to have these robust infrastructural support systems that are going to, to engage students in a host of modalities. Um, and that also builds a lot of resilience into the enterprise uh, when it comes to the recognition, too, that I think a lot of folks are realizing that COVID's not going away anytime soon. And, and that means that we need to have that kind of optionality that many of us probably thought was just a one-time investment, but now seems to be much more of a, a kind of permanent norm. And so that ranges in from putting money into uh, mental health resources for students and some of the platforms that allow those to be scaled up quite easily or as easily as possible. Uh, to putting uh, dollars into kind of the uh, success coaching, success grant, uh, success uh, mission more generally, I, I think has been really exciting to see some of those investments and bets that schools are making there. Um, so those are, I think, what really excites me. Where we do see most schools still doing now, and about 78% of CFOs have told us that this is where they're going to go, is lost revenue recovery more broadly. And again, that's when we talked about earlier, those internal tensions, this is the easiest way to solve them, so to speak, right? Because you're showing up budgets, you're turning, you know, restricted federal grants into a quasi capital injection that you can then maybe defer a decision on later. You could also use those dollars once recovered for, for a non-eligible expense, whether it's a capital project or doubling down in marketing recruitment. So that is by far and away the, the space that we see a lot of folks going. Uh, the other is more broadly, as I mentioned, too, is investments in technology. But to to your expertise, Daniel, I'd be very curious in getting your thoughts here is higher ed's not always the best at making technology investments or decisions, right? Uh, would love to get your thoughts on, on why that's the case and what seems to be kind of manifesting now that's even more challenging. Yeah, well, I mean, I think one of the most interesting things that I've seen here is that um, for a lot of institutions, COVID turned out to be a wake-up call, right? Uh, you know, I, I have been working with higher education IT leaders for a very long time, and uh, they sort of see the, the pandemic or the onset of the pandemic as actually a pivot moment for some of the institutions that are out there where they had been burying their heads in the sand, had been trying to ignore the fact that the rest of the world was sort of moving forward with a digital approach to resiliency, with a digital approach to operations, uh, and thinking about ways to really incorporate technology in the way that they offer services. Um, and they have been facing a bit of an uphill battle on getting more folks on board with that. And 
So when it comes to sort of making decisions around technology, when it comes to uh, sort of implementing a strategic plan there, they didn't really have the support of the rest of the cabinet. And I think that's something that's shifted uh, right now. So, you know, historically, higher ed has had very poor planning around digital strategy. uh, And most, I think fewer than one in 10 right now have a holistic digital strategy for their institution. But the onset of the pandemic, the emergency move to remote operations uh, meant that a lot of folks started to identify the gaps that they had in their plans or in their offerings that, that, that made it very difficult for them to be able to do that. And where an institution doesn't have that longer term plan in place already about how they want to operationalize their future, when the opportunity presents itself to do something big, uh, it's very difficult to make a decision around it because you don't already have that, that sort of direction set. So if you don't have a plan for the investments that you might need to make, it's very difficult to then make those investments when the opportunity arises. So, you know, the inevitable happens. You've already mentioned or sort of uh, gestured towards this, I think, uh, Jackson, a little bit, is that uh, prioritization in higher ed investments is usually uh, deferential to the to the loudest voice in a cacophony, right? You talked about CFOs dealing with competing priorities. That's absolutely the case uh, in the IT seat as well, you know, or you have the tyranny of the urgent. So with the onset of the pandemic, there were institutions who did not have functional or fully available learning management systems, right? They could not deliver online instruction without making significant investments there. And so clearly that rises to the top of the pile. Is it the most effective long-term investment? They, they won't be able to find out, right? Because they had to take that step in a moment of, uh, of urgency. So, you know, the, the overall thing that I would say here is where there isn't a strategic approach to building out that future vision and where it's been done on the fly, where it's been done, you know, under the pressure of, of a very urgent situation, um, it's very difficult to make uh, tempered or strategic decisions there. And I think it's given people a bit of a bad flavor there around what it looks like to actually start making these investments. So while it might have been a catalyst in, in, in one regard, um, I do think we're, we're suffering in terms of just the, the, the change fatigue that has had to happen through this vast amount of, of influx of, of technology implementation investments in technology that we've seen in the last in the last 18 months. So uh, I think lots to be done here in terms of just setting those priorities, setting out even a very, very loose vision of where you want your campus to be in the next 10 years can help start to put those steps in place. Um, but 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 very difficult where that doesn't exist to make uh, to make principled decisions in a, in a timely fashion, I think. Yeah, no, so interesting, Danielle. I, I think you're absolutely right. You know, digital transformation went from being just kind of this buzzword to being like everyone's modus operandi in some ways, but not really understanding what that means. And I think what has emerged over the last two years is just a recognition of how much technology really exists out there in, in the higher ed space and all of the flavors yeah. and, and formats. It It's kind of an alphabet soup of confusion, I think, to make a decision on. How would you help campuses really sort through what's out there and then, to your point, really develop that longer-term strategy that's going to, to best return impact on the enterprise? Yeah, so as I think about it, I like to map tech investments into three different buckets. Uh, and I can give some sort of flavor around those to, to make them real for folks who might be listening. Uh, but those three buckets are monolithic migrations, like huge tech shifts from old legacy systems into sort of newer versions of those systems that are going to just help update processes. Uh, adaptive digital foundations, so some of the sort of uh, underlying capabilities that you might need to be able to deliver on some of the projects that you have. Uh, and then more of those student-centric innovations, so applications or technologies that are actually existing at the interface of of your different staff and the students or their direct-to-student technologies, things that really shift the way that they experience their, their interactions with your institution. Um, and for me, the most important there are the last two that I talked about, right? That underlying foundation for the digital future of your institution, and then those interfacing pieces that are going to help uh, create a more frictionless experience at the intersection of your institution and the students that it serves. 
Um, and so both of those are actually um, just really important, uh, really important mechanisms for shifting technology from what it has historically been, which is a cost center, into a strategic driver, right, into a, a force for delivering the future institution. Uh, for me, I think some of those more monolithic migrations, we talked about institutions that you've chatted with who are upgrading ERPs, sometimes incredibly necessary, but an ERP at the end of the day is, is a kind of cost center investment in higher ed, right? It's not the thing that will draw students to your institution. It's not the thing that's going to help students stay at your institution, right? It's very loosely tied to the mission of what you're doing. And so for me, that's that cost center spending. Um, and, you know, for, for IT centers or IT organizations that are thought of as cost centers, they typically see cuts and cuts and cuts, right? And spending goes elsewhere in their organization. Uh, but the good news is that we're seeing a lot of changes here. We're seeing uh, business offices starting to think about IT strategy. In fact, I think, Jackson, one of your surveys, it was 80% of CFOs were looking at revisiting their institution's IT strategy, right? So we're, we're getting that buy-in that this is actually a, a strategic investment, not just a cost center. Uh, and that leads us to those those two other forms of investment that I mentioned, right? The adaptive digital foundations and then those student-centric uh, innovations. So for me, it's that student-centric innovation that's probably more closely tied to what we're talking about here with, with her, right? If we talk about how difficult it is to draw a line uh, back from specific investments to, to the way that they might impact the, the outcomes of students. Those pieces that really, really uh, impact the student experience, improve the student experience, are gonna be so much easier to justify uh, at the nexus of what it means to become a more digital institution through the onset of the pandemic. So for me, that's that's where I would be looking. Um, that's where I would be prioritizing my spending right now is what are the pain points that my students face? You know, what does a student journey look like? What is a, a student of the pandemic and what are the new challenges that, that might be rising up in, in importance for them to be tackling as they move through our institution? And then how can I simplify those processes? How can I maybe take those processes away, right? How can I make that something that doesn't concern my students so they can focus more of their time and energy on the things that matter? Uh, and it's that kind of process, I think, that, that helps uh, some investments rise to the top when you start to think about them from, through that, through that student-centric uh, mindset. Yeah, no, that that's great context for me, Danielle, too. And I think about, particularly as we move away from, you know, relief, funding and investments, right, which was where we've been for most of 2020 and in most of the early part of 2021, into more of a recovery mindset and, and thinking about where those dollars can best be deployed for long-term growth and focus. Like focusing on that student interface, I think, seems to be the greatest overlap and impact, but also when we think about federal priorities, both in HERF, but also looking forward down the line and to see what else might be coming from Washington in the near to medium future. Yeah, and I think actually, Jackson, that raises probably a very interesting, uh, an interesting, if speculative part of, <laughs> of a conversation that we can have there is, you know, we have seen a huge influx of funding. We're talking about this being a one-time event, but I know that folks are on tenterhooks right now thinking about what does some of the future investments in higher ed look like, because there are still rumblings, you know, there's potentially a sort of more dollars coming our way, maybe in a different guise. And so maybe that's an area that you can give us a bit of insight into. What are you hearing in terms of possible future federal funding sources for, for higher ed? Yeah, and there's a lot uh, to be out there and certainly a lot of speculation. So, uh, you know, I always probably have to timestamp the date of this recording because it probably will change in a week, right? Um, but but what I would say, you know, there's the traditional sources of funding for higher ed that are likely going to be amplified. And so what do I mean by that? I mean the kind of traditional discretionary appropriation process, right? So that includes our, our Title III uh, five and seven programs. So HBCU, MSI, and strengthening institution programs. And, and so uh, more dollars being allocated there potentially in the next budget uh, with a greater use category uh, on the eligibility. 
and some of the usage on, on the ed tech side. So seeing a lot of institutions explore those funding programs if, if they meet the eligibility criteria uh, for the competitive grants that are often available in there. Uh, the other component that's a piece of that is earmarks are back, right? Uh, this is a headline I feel like that needs to be more capitalized across higher ed, but the, the earmark process was, was largely dissolved for, for 10 years. It's been restored for this upcoming uh, budget. And so you're seeing some institutions carve out dedicated capital project funding streams out of the federal budget. So so funding particular uh, facility construction, but also doing a lot of tech investments here as well. And that process is rather complicated because you have to go through your congressperson to, to do so, but uh, been an area that I think a lot of publics and as well as private institutions are looking at when they think about some of the, the one-time investments that they need help financing from a standpoint. So that's the kind of normal nuts and bolts of government funding that I think folks are pursuing. Then there's the really what else is out there? And that is the Biden Build Back Better plan, right? Um, the American Families and the American Jobs Plan. And right now we have, you know, the Senate is in, in Congress more generally speaking are moving forward uh, on a large budget resolution of about 3.5 trillion. And in there are significant federal funding streams uh, for community colleges, MSIs, HBCUs, um, as well as some public institutions on the four-year side. Uh, and that includes everything from dedicated infrastructure spending on new facilities and new buildings to uh, one-time massive investments in student success and transfer, uh, as well as free two-year, which we could spend an entire other podcast talking about. But those are on the table right now. It'll be very interesting to see where Congress comes out of this. But I think the, the thing that's on the agenda right now is that the success mission and the, the ed tech mission have gone federal for really the first time ever. And you're starting to see Congress and, and the Department of Education really identify a need for large federal investments there. Yeah, I think, uh, th thank you, um, Jackson, for that um, tentative look into the future. And I, I appreciate the need for sort of time stamping that because the, the uncertainty there really is real. But um, one thing that strikes me about that, uh, that, that future that you're painting is that we are still looking at consistent one-time funding um, for a lot of these things and, and focused on, on, on capital uh, expenditures. And if we look at EdTech, if we look at the investments that, that folks are making in technology moving forward, we're looking at subscription-based or operational expenditures, yep. right? As they partner with more vendors, as they work on on sort of more of these software as a service models. Uh, and so I'm just curious if you've seen any institutions able to make those kinds of purchases with this type of funding. Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. I think uh, Congress works in, you know, an annual appropriation cycle. So th things tend to have, you know, short shelf lives for that reason. And that's just the, the federal budgeting standpoint, which makes it very hard to do technology procurement in this day and age. Now, some of those investments, the student success one, for example, would be over a sustained period of time, 10 years, right? So there would be more dedicated dollars throwing through states uh, and public systems in particular. Um, so th that is one that probably has a little bit more flexibility from a subscription and longer term software standpoint. But what we're seeing on kind of the one-time elements is looking for things that are going to return that ROI, right? That are going to be potentially be able to drive new revenue growth or cost savings enough to cover uh, the investment going forward. And so that's why I think the success mission in particular really spikes off into the surface, uh, given that there's the opportunity potentially to recover those uh, the the cost to, to make it more sustainable going forward. Um, but again, you know, I think that the federal funding is never a great source for sustainable cost structures. Just ask our, our uh, friends in the, the research enterprise, you know, at most large research institutions, they, they know this better than anyone else when it comes to labs and infrastructure there. So very similar effect that I think we're starting to see at other flavors or forms across higher ed. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, thank you very much, uh, Jackson. This discussion has been absolutely riveting. Uh, but as we come to the end of our time together today, I did want to make sure that we pull up one last time from our conversation and maybe reiterate from your perspective, just your top pieces 
of advice for university leaders that are out there, you know, thinking about how to move forward from here with care, but also, you know, thinking uh, about how to move forward intentionally and, and with a little bit of speed as well and get this in, under the radar. Yeah, you know, I think the the first piece of advice I would say is is a lot of folks have done this, but a lot of institutions haven't yet. But really making sure your decision processes around Hearth are very clear and transparent. You have clear decision makers and, and timelines and, and kind of workflows and expectations to follow, um, as well as kind of setting your strategic goals uh, using the Herf dollars from the very beginning, and then working out some of those details as the process matures. I think that's so important. The other thing in that is a lot of folks are including you know, ROI or impact measures or, or goals in that process itself. And that's very important to kind of think about uh, getting all of those kind of higher order impact uh, elements that we were talking about earlier, Danielle, uh, into that process as early and as effectively as possible. Uh, the second thing is, is again, you know, HERF is, is not a blank check and it's kind of not a one-time piggy bank to, you know, keep in the back of your pocket till the very end. It's kind of like a very restricted gift card that's going to expire. And, and so from that standpoint, you have to use the dollars or you lose them. And you need to do so very carefully and, and following all of those due diligence and, and kind of other elements that we've talked about through the course of our conversation. So from that standpoint, I think it, it's very important to contextualize what these dollars and what they aren't, what they are and what they aren't essentially, and making sure everyone on campus understands that too, and that hopefully will drive some of your uh, decision making forward. And then finally, I think uh, to summarize everything we've covered really here is, is making what investments you can make in the most student-centric digital uh, and resilient building functions as possible. I think that those are where the, the focus has been and has been even more uh, magnified, I think, in the last couple of weeks as the Delta variant has raised questions about you know, the, the sustainability of campus operations in the fall in particular. And so a lot of focus thinking about how can we build that institutional resilience and capacity that's going to allow us to improve our ability to search students, but also give us a lot more flexibility as we think about the future um, and in the trajectory that COVID's in. So those stand out to me. There's many others and always happy to talk to anyone uh, in the industry about what's happening here and share what we're hearing in some of the advice that we've circulated on. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Jackson, for your time. And thank you to everybody who's listened in with us today. We should uh, go ahead now and sign off wishing you uh, resiliency and speed in spending these funds uh, and hope to see you all sometime soon on Office Hours with EAB. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening. Please join us next week when we take a look at the growing market for low-cost certificates, micro-credentials, and even full degrees now offered by companies like Coursera, Google, and many others. Our guests will explore the impact of this competition, as well as opportunities for traditional higher education institutions to partner with alternative providers. Until then, thank you for your time.